The scripture we'll be reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 17. And this is what the Holy Scripture says. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the believing husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how will you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray that you will be up with our pastor today as he brings his lesson forward on this scripture. Lord, we ask that you prepare each of us by cleansing our mind and our soul to receive his message. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to better understand your holy scripture. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share this message with others. Lord, we thank you for the Christian influence that FCS has in this community. And Lord, we thank you for the, uh, allowing us as members of SCS to be salt and light to our community. We pray, Lord, that all that we do will always glorify your name. And Lord, <clears throat> we ask you to bless leadership in this state in this nation that you will bring blessing upon this new administration and this cabinet and its members that you will open their heart to the scriptures and all of their decisions that lead this country and Lord we ask you to bring blessings upon the opposition leaders who continue to bring issues that is causing such division. And we know, Lord, that you can open their heart and they can learn to use your scriptures to guide this nation as well. We ask all these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a joy to open the word of God with you this morning. If you have not been here the previous two weeks or have not listened to uh, the messages online just by way of a quick review to sort of get you up to speed on where we are. We've looked at three texts, or this will be the third text now, uh, on the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And we did so because we came to Mark chapter 10. And I felt it would be wise to take some time to start all the way in Genesis and work forward in terms of the text 
that we have in Scripture on these issues, on these important issues. And I've been very encouraged. I want to thank you uh, for your gracious maturity and how you've handled the last two weeks. Uh, I've been encouraged to see how you've responded. And I trust that this time has been encouraging. This will be the final message here. And then uh, I'm looking forward, as I'm sure you might be as well, to getting back to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10 will be next week. I came across a headline this week as I was preparing this message from a story published in the New York Daily News all the way back in 2011. The headline read, 99-year-old Italian man divorces his 96-year-old wife after finding her secret love letters from the 1940s. 60 years prior, this woman had written some letters to a secret lover. He found them 60 years later and ended the marriage and divorce. The story went on to tell of the pain of their daughters and sons and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of this man's divorce. We live in a day that is filled with immorality, that is filled with sexual perversion, and one that is certainly not defined or confined by any age. Rather, it's an historical issue. And yet, we come this morning to the Bible where we see yet again that the gospel is the remedy to our sin-filled culture. As much as it is today the remedy, it was the remedy for the Apostle Paul and the church of Corinth. In fact, our culture looks strikingly similar to the church of Corinth, as Paul finds himself writing to it in 1 Corinthians 7. And then they, they needed the truth to be reminded to them as much as we do today, that the humble... Humble, mature service to God seeks to peacefully promote Christ in marriage to the believer or unbeliever. Humble, mature service to God seeks to peacefully promote Christ in marriage to the believer or unbeliever. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 7, you might just look with me at verse 10. I'm actually going to start at verse 10 by way of helping us understand some context for the remaining part that we will look at 12 through 17. This first point I want to make in verses 10 and 11 is that marriage is good and permanent. Marriage is good and permanent. Paul says this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. There were divisions in the church of Corinth. If you look all the way back in chapter 1, And following, you see those divisions crop up. The situation in the Corinthian church was one of sexual perversion and morality, even in the Christian house of worship, as you see in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Paul is rebuking them for not only their sin, but he rebukes them for their arrogance, their pride. Their immaturity in the faith is is addressed all the way back in chapter 3. If you look there, the beginning of chapter 3, he says, Paul, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, even now you are not ready for solid food. Paul rebuking them. You should have by this time been ready for the T-bone steak of Christian doctrine. But no, I'm still having to give you the basics. You're immature, you're arrogant, he's telling the Corinthian church. And both of those things combined, the Corinthian church's arrogance, the Corinthian church's um, immaturity, combined to this whole entire mess that we see ourselves in in 1 Corinthians 7. 
of sexual perversion and immorality. He addresses them, beginning with the unmarried and the widows in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to aflame with passions. And so he charges them to remain faithful. He charges the married to remain faithful in 10 through 17 by reminding them of the teaching of Christ as found in Matthew and Mark. You see that there in verse 10. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. He's referring back to Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. And Paul is really assuming here in 1 Corinthians 7 that sin, especially in the light of the, of the immaturity and in the sinful per- perversion that is happening in the Corinthian church, he's assuming that unlawful divorces would, if not were already, taking place in the Corinthian church. Their immaturity was showcased in many ways, but one of them was showcased in the way that they thought, at the beginning of chapter 7, that singleness was somehow more godly. If Paul would have repeated even the, the, the exception clause of Christ in, found, in Matthew 19, divorce only for the reason of adultery, many marriages in the Corinthian church, maybe even very good marriages, would have ended either due to the immorality previously in the marriage, somewhere along the line, or because in their immaturity they saw an out. This is the way I can get to be more holy if I can get out and get back to singleness. And either way, they would have missed the point of reconciliation and forgiveness and the restoration of the marriage. So Paul simply gives them the prevailing design for marriage as given by Jesus Christ and as designed by God in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman for all of life, permanently. And the only other option for those divorced unlawfully is reconciliation or celibacy, which would have been a very hard word from Paul to the Corinthian church. And he deals with believers. He begins this portion that we're studying this morning in 10 and 11, dealing with believers. And it seems a bit of contrast to Matthew 19's exception clause, and much more can be said about this, but in short, I don't believe that there is any contrast here. Paul is simply referring to the teaching of Christ on marriage, not referring to the teaching of Christ on divorce. He's referring to Christ's teaching on the permanence of marriage, and Christ very much, very clearly, teaches the believer to be about the permanence of marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate, he tells us in Mark 10. In Matthew 19. So Paul addresses the believer here and he simply states, and I paraphrase, if you're married, remain married. And if you get divorced, that is illegitimately, you ought to remain celibate or be reconciled. So the emphasis is all over reconciliation from over sin and the permanence of marriage to be the attitude of all believers. When we think of redemptive history, starting in the garden and working back to the new heavens and the new earth, sort of the the garden, if you will, coming back. And you see this beginning of God's creation and then we had this huge dip and sin and fall into the world and, and yet God bringing about the restoration of his people. Marriage has a profound, 
important part in that storyline of redemption. The Christian marriage is the closest we have in redemption, redemptive history of returning to the garden, of returning by his redemptive grace to the original design for marriage. Christian marriage pictures the marriage of Christ and the church and the coming eternal consummation when Christ returns to take his bride to himself for all of eternity. And therefore, the the institution of marriage is good. The institution of marriage is good even for the unbeliever. Now, I don't know, but I can imagine if you're an unbeliever here today and you're married and you're thinking, yeah, that's what you say. If you knew what was going on in my marriage, you would not say that it was good. My wife won't love me like I want her to. My husband doesn't care for me as I want him to. We fight all the time. And I would simply say to you that the Bible tells us, his word tells us that the institution of marriage is good as he has designed it. And the the simple fact of the matter is for you, the unbeliever this morning, that what is preventing your marriage from being good in your eyes is not God preventing that. It is your sin. It is your sin that prevents you from seeing the true picture of marriage and the goodness that resides in that picture. And that is bad news. Now, the application for us as believers is, is, I think, clear. And the fact that we should be about promoting marriage as God designed it. One man, one woman, for life, good and permanent. And that promotion can, could, could take on many different forms. It could be simply that you are faithful, even this coming week, to pray for the marriages that are represented in this church or this community. It could be that we support legislation at the Capitol for promoting marriage as God designed it. I I thought this week, even by application, that many of us, especially of us guys, we don't like going to wedding ceremonies. I've got to go to a wedding this weekend, right? And yet, what an opportunity to even promote good, healthy marriages, godly, healthy marriages, Attending marriage ceremonies of believers with the desire to be a witness and hold accountable those covenanting together. And, bo- and brothers and sisters, in your own marriages, we should be modeling marriages that are good. And not only permanent good marriages, but progressively growing in sanctification. Progressively growing in, in goodness, if you'll allow me. Husbands, are you creating, are you fostering a marriage in the home that is conducive to holiness? Are you being proactive and communicating and praying for your wife? Are you seeking the good of your marriage? Are you guarding your family from sexual sin that seeks to destroy marriages and families? Are you leading your marriage with an aim for growing and developing the marriage to be more and more and more glorious for His glory and by His grace? And God has graciously given every believer that is married in this room a tremendous means of grace in the form of the local church. Titus to men, Titus to women, your pastor, brothers and sisters, the question really for us this morning, if we're about promoting good and healthy permanent marriages, is who do we go to and lean on for support for your own marriage? 
so many, even by implication here in the, the Corinthian church, here in the book of Corinthians, and even in chapter 6, they go outside the church, they go outside the church to the unbeliever, whether it's that friend at the coffee shop, whether it's the counselor, whether it's the self-help book, the Google search, whatever it be, and they look for help for their marriage rather than leaning upon the church. And it's when we go to the church, brothers and sisters, that we're reminded yet again that Christ is our example as the faithful husband. He is faithful when we are unfaithful. He holds fast to us as we sing quite often, even when we let go. His love for you never, ever fades or grows tiresome or weary, even when ours grows tiresome or weary. Christ is committed to you eternally. He laid down his life for you in order that you might live and even bear fruit. And so there is no end to the wonder and grace available for our marriages this morning if we will but take a bit of time to look to Christ. Point number one, marriage is good and to be permanent. Point number two, we see this in verses 12 through 14, that we should be a faithful witness in marriage. The Christian should be a faithful witness in marriage. Now, Paul, let me read these passages, says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul's transitioning here, transitioning from speaking to two believers in marriage to speaking to one believer that is married to an unbeliever. And lest uh, we get a little bit confused by verse 12, the beginning of it there, Paul is not speaking outside of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You see there at the beginning, to the rest, meaning to the believer, to the unbeliever, married to the unbeliever, I say, not the Lord. Paul is not saying, Christ did not address this issue, so I am. Or Christ did not, this is not the word of Christ, I'm just kind of throwing in something. He's simply saying, Christ did not speak upon this, but I'm, by way of apostolic authority, speaking on this issue, meaning Take what I say here as inspired scripture. Christ spoke to the two believers. I'm speaking to the believer married to the unbeliever. And the Corinthian church in that day would have viewed marriage of a believer to an unbeliever as as a union that was unclean or even unholy. Now we also need to understand that Paul is addressing the believers who were saved after they find themselves married. Meaning, unbeliever, unbeliever, they get married. Course of life goes along. God in his grace extends mercy. One of them is saved. And that's who Paul is speaking to. So we certainly know that he, in other places, addresses believers and says, do not be unequally yoked. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should not marry an unbeliever. So Paul is simply saying, now as a believer, you find yourself married to an unbeliever. And the question is then, should you stay in marriage? Why should you not get out of the marriage? Aren't you unequally yoked? 
And the answer is that the believer, now married to the unbeliever, is unequally yoked. But you should stay in the marriage because marriage is good and designed by God to be permanent. Point number one. And instead of you being made unholy as the believer by their unbelief, they actually receive a means of grace due to your holiness found in Christ. Your holiness by Christ is a blessing to your spouse as well as to your children. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Instead of God looking upon your marriage as he would look upon the marriage of two unbelievers as a defilement of the gospel picture... He looks upon your mixed marriage with grace and actually blesses the marriage. In fact, your belief, Christian with unchristian, may actually well be be a, a, a place, placing your unbelieving spouse in the way of saving grace in God's perfect and sovereign timing. And Paul isn't saying that your marriage to an unbeliever is going to be easy. In fact, if we see the admonition of Scripture and the teaching of Scripture as a whole this morning, we see that it will be quite difficult, and yet the admonishment here is stay in the marriage and trust God's abundant and amazing grace for that difficult time. I thought this week just about my own sin in marriage and the difficulty that my own sin causes in my marriage, and yet the grace and the kindness my wife shows to me in return. And that that led me to thinking, I have really no clue understanding how difficult it might be for a believer to be married to an unbeliever. And yet, I want to offer to you the encouragement found in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. That if you do find yourself married to an unbeliever, Christian, that by God's grace and mercy, as Christ, the faithful husband, laid down his life for you in unbelief, you too, by his grace, can love your unbelieving spouse. It will be difficult. It may be exceptionally difficult even in the public sphere. It can be difficult to respond Christ-like when you're an object of maybe a crude joke in public. And yet by his grace, you can respond with kindness. And I would encourage you, do not complain about your unbelieving spouse. Show them honor, stand for Christ, and yet seek to be united with them. Treat them as you want to be treated, patiently and tenderly, graciously, even affectionately. And you do so, you are enabled to do so, because Christ was fully committed to the glory of his Father, even when you and I were in unbelief. He fully loved us even when we hated him. The work of Christ for you, dear brother or sister, if you're in that position, will be that which encourages and motivates and sustains you in what may be difficult days or times with your unbelieving spouse. And yet be assured that God is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Go to him in prayer. Go to him in prayer with the confidence of the spirit of Hebrews 4.13 that you might find mercy and grace to help in time of need and trust that he promises to give you that what you need. Be faithful to proclaim, even creatively, not obnoxiously, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live in the joy of knowing Christ. Read your Bible when they are watching pornography. Be on your knees when they are laughing at a crude movie joke. Seek to serve them in marital intimacy as unto Christ. Go to the church and church us, people here today, 
May we be an encouragement to those believers married to an unbeliever. We should not pity them. When they walk in the door, we should not say, I'm so sorry. No, we should encourage them, not discourage them. We should encourage them to remain faithful. We should remind them that marriage is good and permanent. In church, we should engage even that believer's whole family in hospitality. Don't just invite that believer over to your house. Invite the unbelieving spouse as well. Treat the believer married to the unbeliever as a married individual, joined as one to them, not as a single believer. Paul's admonishment here in verses 12 through 14 points the responsibility of peace that we'll see here in a moment in verses 15 and 16 to the believer. Everything in verse 12 through 14 hinges on the attitude of the believing partner. Point number three, we see this in verse 15 and 16. You are called to peace. Paul is still speaking to believer in relationship with unbeliever. You are called to peace. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife? Christians should be those who uphold marriage as good and permanent. And so the separation of an unbelieving spouse from a believer should never, never be instigated in any way, shape, or form by the believer. That's clear in Scripture. As those with a gospel-rich understanding of marriage, we should remain faithful in that marriage and conduct ourselves peacefully even if they decide they want to leave. We're called to peace because Christ has made peace between you and God. Christ has made peace for us between God and man. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has broken down the wall of hostility by the power of his perfectly spilt blood that satisfied the divine wrath of God upon you as a sinner. That is amazing grace for us this morning. And yet, in fact, what, what more, brothers and sisters, do we need as motivation to strive for peace with those around us than to look to Christ and to see the wonder of God's peace with us when before, you and I were both counted as enemies. And now we have peace with God. And breaking away even for, for a few moments here from the context of believer to unbeliever, believers, our striving for peace and marriage and relationships should be in like manner to the way God brought about peace by dealing with sin. We, we, don't, we don't shove, believers, sin under the rug. This, this applies no matter if you're single or married. We don't just say, let bygones be bygones. If, if sin is that which is bringing about strife and discord, then deal with sin. Repent. Be reconciled. Extend forgiveness. If you're here this morning or maybe even listening to this and find yourself as a believer being divorced by an unbeliever, may I encourage you by his grace 
in some practical ways to deal peacefully with the horrible pain of a loved one breaking away. You notice there at the end of verse 15, or middle of verse 15, the phrase, let it be so. This phrase rings with a note of finality, an ending of a relationship. And no one, no one would be foolish enough to, to tell you this morning that that ending is going to be easy. In fact, it will probably be excruciatingly difficult for that loved one to break away. And yet, a warning, be on guard. Guard yourself against bitterness or slander or anger. Do not speak ill even to your closest friend of your spouse. Remind yourself the truth of Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In fact, you can be a faithful gospel witness by peacefully responding to their desire for divorce. And church, if we are committed to one another and one amongst us finds themselves having an unbelieving spouse leaving and divorce, we cannot be bench warmers in their life. We have to be all in in helping them in whatever way possible to promote peace. We've we got to be there with support. We have to be there with encouragement, financial support even, babysitting their children, moving furniture, finding housing, hospitality, weeping with those who weep, reminding them of God's grace, and even treating the unbeliever leading, leaving in a small community with kindness. You're going to see him or her in the grocery store. And yet, let's peacefully respond not denying the pain and the hardship, but peacefully responding. And that very well may be a faithful gospel witness that God uses to bring that unbeliever to himself. Now, by way of application, undoubtedly, the controversial question arises at this point, what about remarriage for the believing spouse who has an unbelieving spouse that has left? I believe that the Bible teaches that there are three reasons for the married to get married again, and I know that many disagree with this position and I trust that if you disagree we would both agree that our goal and hard work should be squarely placed on the permanence of marriage and I want you I encourage you to investigate this and and open your Bible I'd love to talk to you more about that if that's your desire but for now just in short there are three reasons I believe the Bible allows for remarriage and remarriage only in the Lord For a believer, one, if your spouse dies, that's in Romans 7. Two, divorce for adultery, Matthew 19. And three, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, if the unbelieving spouse leaves. Last point, verse 17. Look with me there. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Point number four, if you're keeping notes, live for Christ. Live for Christ. If you find yourself here today, maybe in the awkward place, the humbling place of realizing that you are a sinner and you have not been saved from your sin against a holy God, and maybe over the course of the last few minutes as I have uh, detailed this particular passage of Scripture and you have realized that As this scripture pertains to godly marriage 
or as it pertains to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, or as it pertains to the grace to live not for yourself, but for God's glory, and you find yourself thinking, that cannot be said of me. Or maybe you find yourself thinking, that can not only not be said of me, there has been a time where I have been unfaithful in my marriage and I wonder if that's keeping me from finding forgiveness. I wonder if that's something that I won't be able to get past. And I wanna offer you three things. First of all, let me be clear in saying that you are in the right place. And secondly, let me be clear that according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, your adultery, your marital unfaithfulness, or any other sin for that matter, is a violation of God's command and that in your sin you have no hope of being a part of God's kingdom in heaven. Not only do you have no hope, you have the promise of eternal punishment in your sin. But thirdly, let me be even more clear that there is good news for you this morning in the face of bad news. And the good news is not found in something that you can do. There's not a book I could give you to read. There's not a, a something, a 10-step program for you to go through that will get you a better marriage. There isn't a certain seminar or, or a program that I'm gonna send you to. The good news is found in the truth that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came to earth, lived, died on a cross to pay the penalty of death that is deserved by all of us as rebellious sinners against God. Christ and his work has secured for you forgiveness from all sin, even sexual sin. That forgiveness is given to all those who trust in the work and death of Christ as the payment for your sin. And with that forgiveness comes eternal life instead of eternal death. Christ proved that he paid the penalty for sin. And the power of death was broken because on the third day he was raised from the dead after dying. He walked as you and I walked even this morning. He walked for 40 days after being raised from the dead, testifying to his power over death. And then he ascended into heaven. And that is where he is now, ruling and reigning. And at the appointed time, a time that is only known by God the Father, he will return to judge the living and the dead, to judge the world. And the good news is that that choice is the, the choice of that good news is held out for you this morning. And that by his grace, you can go from living for yourself this morning to living for God by his life-changing power. Your purpose can change from what, from what glorifies you to what glorifies God. You can find true joy in relationship with God in a relationship that will never end. In a relationship that brings you joy irregardless of your horizontal relationships that may be miserable even this morning that you can find the power needed to deal with sin in relationships in a God-honoring way. On the back of your hand out there, you have my number. Call me. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about this. Go, don't go out until you, to talk to somebody next to you in the pew. They'd be happy to talk to you about this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that which breaks the power of sin and takes you from that which is dead to that which is alive. Anyone in here that is a believer in Jesus Christ would tell you that there is inexplicable joy for you offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul's encouragement here is that it is good to be married, verse 17, 
but it is better to be submitted to Christ. So whether you are single, I encourage you this morning, live for Christ. If you are married, believer, whether your marriage is good or bad this morning, live for Christ. If you are widowed, live for Christ. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom this morning. Seek it even this week and that you can do so because he giveth more grace. He is well worth living for because he fully committed to the Father out of love for you. Brothers, think about this. Sisters, think about this. Christ lived. The Son of God lived on this earth that you might live. You lived this morning. You are here this morning because Christ lived. He died for you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you. And by his death, you live. His grace is greater than your sin. His promise stands true for you this morning. That as you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. You are able to live for him, irregardless of the difficulty of horizontal circumstances. Paul's encouragement here is that we should be about living for him. To do so even this week. His work, the work of Christ, has fundamentally and practically changed our identities and priorities. No longer is our significance found in marital status or our health or our cultural background or our paycheck or our attitude or our social rankings. Our significance is now rooted in that we belong to Christ because as verse 23 tells you in chapter 7 here, you were bought. Christ purchased you. So, whether you are single or whether it is a difficult marriage that you are in or whether it is that you are widowed or whether it is that you are in a good marriage, these things are not easy. And yet, let us this week not murmur or grumble or complain about where he has placed us, but by his grace, let us seek to be content, trusting his sovereign grace, recognizing his everlasting love for you. And let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another all the more this week in being faithful to him. Let's be more engaged in helping and strengthening one another as a gospel community and reminding one another of the beauty of Christ, reminding one another of the true gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the ability, that gives us the grace, the desire, even the reason to stay focused on living for him this week. And for those of us who are, are married, let us be committed to humble, mature service to God, seeking to peacefully promote Christ in marriage to the believer or unbeliever. Join with me in prayer. Father, ultimately we recognize this morning that we are, in, we are, we, we are incapable of good and permanent marriage in our own strength and by our own merit. But we also recognize this morning the wondrous truth. The wondrous truth that is Jesus Christ for us that enables us by your grace to give you glory in our relationships. Wherever those relationships might be, single, married, good or bad marriage, difficult marriage, easy marriage, widowed. Your grace is greater than all of these circumstances. Father, we want to be faithful witnesses. We want to be about promoting 
as a picture of the gospel, good and permanent marriages. We want to be about living for Christ. And we rejoice to know that we are able to do so this morning for your glory because you love us. And your love extends not just for the next couple hours today, it extends eternally. It extends this week. Father, we rejoice that even this morning we get to be reminded of your love in the picture of the, of the communion table. That as we celebrate together as a body of believers, regenerated, made alive by your love through Christ for us, we're yet again reminded of that grace that is greater than all of our sin. We rejoice, Father, in this table as we will partake here in a few moments because it's reminding us until you come of your love for us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.